0: Well, today, uh, as we continue our journey uh, through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we come to one of the more audacious acts that you uh, come across in the Gospels. And, uh, And so before we look at it, I want you to think about kind of what's the most audacious thing that you have ever asked for? right? What's, what's the thing that is just kind of off the charts that you have asked for? Um, I kind of live a superlative life. It's kind of the, the nature that I have grown up with. My dad's attention was kind of hard to get, so I had to do big things in order to capture his attention. So I've never uh, been afraid to swing for the seats um, when I do things. And, uh, and so uh, probably the, one of the more audacious things uh, that I've done, the most audacious thing I did was ask Holly to marry me, and several people tried to talk her out of that. Um, but God called her into it, and she came, which was great. Uh, but one of the more audacious things that I've done other than that is when uh, in 2015, Holly and I applied for the Lilly Grant. Uh, the Guzzies had gotten a Lilly Grant earlier in uh, the Ministry of Hope, and we were like, hey, we should go for it. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, the Lilly Grant is, was established by the Eli Lilly Foundation, and um, it's given to pastors. It's a once-in-a-lifetime grant. You can only get it once. And um, what they ask you to do is uh, to apply for it, and they have a committee that chooses who's going to get them each year. It's kind of like you know winning the Nobel Prize for like, pastors because it's such an amazing gift. And, and what it is is it's $50,000. To do whatever you want that is going to be conducive to your spiritual renewal and your personal rest and your relationships. But it comes with a caveat. You can't write a book. You can't spend any of the money getting a degree. And you have to promise after you've done this grant that you're going to come back to your church. And you're going to, you're going to stay at your church for at least a year. And so what they require you to do is your your application has to have a theme, your sabbatical has to have a theme, it can be up to one year in length, and um, you have to explain how you're going to spend the money. And so uh, Holly and I were writing this grant application out with the help of the Guzzies because they'd gotten it before, and Jeremy White was helping us write it, and um, I was like, hey, let's just kind of swing for the seats on this thing. And so the theme of my uh, sabbatical in 2015 was called learning to listen. And uh, basically the way I broke it down was I'm going to spend a week with a spiritual director in a monastery learning to listen to God. And then I'm going to spend one week with each significant relationship in my life kind of asking this question, "Where, where could we go that I would get you, that you would like show up? What can we do together that would be conducive to me listening to you? Um, And then at the end, I'd spend a week with uh, uh, a spiritual director again in a monastery, kind of listening to God and kind of putting it all together. And so here's what I said we were going to do. For a week, Guzzy and I and a guy named Chip Sneed and another guy named Dean Faulkner would get a paid fly fishing trip to Tennessee. Then, after that, Matt Hamm and J.D. Brooks and I would get a paid trip to L.A. to go to the CrossFit Games. Then, after that, Holly and I would go to Ireland for a week because she had this really significant spiritual experience in Ireland as a missionary in college. Then, uh, we'd spend a week in Italy uh, studying Roman, the Roman Empire because at that point, Davis was really into that. He was really into like you know, like soldiers and swords and stuff like that. So, we'd learn how to be gladiators. Then, we would go to Santorini, Greece for a week and the reason we picked that is because my daughter, Laurel, was really into the Kardashians, and they vacationed in Santorini. She's like, I want to go to Santorini. All right? And then we come back, and we go to New York for a week, and we go to U2 live in the Madison Square Garden, and I try to get backstage with U2 and Jimmy Fallon. All right? And then we come back, and we go to the monastery, and I do this week there. That was the thing. Holly and I wrote this down. And we're like putting a stamp on it. We're like, we're going to actually ask these people to give us $50,000 to do this. This is ridiculous, right? This is ridiculous. And Holly's like, we shouldn't send this in. We shouldn't say this. It is too selfish. It's too selfish. But I was like, hey, it's a once in a lifetime thing. Like, don't, don't you know, play it safe. Let's, let's do it. And so we sent it in and lo and behold, we got it. Right? We got it. And, then, and we got to do all those things. And in fact, I got right up to the backstage door to meet You 2 and then it fell apart. I was, I was one phone call away from their manager. I was working hard to get their manager on the phone, but it didn't come together. But we did get to see You 2 in Madison Square Garden. Now, here's why I bring this up. Because uh, today, um, what we're going to see is um, something super audacious. Um, this is kind of one of those big moments in the Gospels. It appears in several of the Gospels. And Mark uh, talks about it this way. He says this, When Jesus entered Capernaum again, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Now, imagine what it was like to be in that room. First and foremost, it was exciting, right? There had to be an enormous amount of energy in that room because Jesus had finally returned home. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth, but Capernaum had become his hometown as an adult. We don't know whether or not Jesus had his own place in Capernaum or if this is Simon Peter's house. Scholars are kind of divided on that. But either way, the people of Capernaum knew Jesus, and they knew he was back. Now, the last time he had been here, he had stood up in their synagogue and preached a sermon like no one had ever heard before. Then he had gone to Peter's house healed Peter's mother-in-law and people started lining up in front of Peter's home for Jesus to heal them and he had healed them until it got so dark that he needed to go to bed they left he went to bed and then he got up early the next day and he left town and he had gone and preached in all the villages surrounding Capernaum he had not come back even though there was a line of people in front of his house wanting to be healed. But now he's back. And word's gotten out. Hey, have you heard? Jesus isn't him. Jesus is back. And so everybody has shown up at his house because they're not willing to wait until the Sabbath day to meet him again at the synagogue. They want to hear from him right now. They want to be with him right now. And so they have filled his home to capacity to the point that people are overflowing overflowing into the streets. But they're not alone. Some skeptics have shown up as well. Look at verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there, Mark tells us. Now, these guys were kind of like the religious police are in Saudi Arabia or Iran um, today. They didn't have, like, state authority, but because... Israel was a theocracy that was currently operating under the Roman Empire. They were, un- they were conquered and they were under Roman rule. These guys had a lot of pull. They were um, almost like a militia in some sense. And their job was to keep the rules of Israel in force underneath the rules of the Roman Empire. They kind of went around making sure that everybody was uh, keeping up with their traditions and their religious instructions. And if they weren't, it could really end poorly for you because they could tell the people in your village to stone you. Those people would, and the Romans would kind of turn a blind eye to it. So it was kind of vigilante justice that could kind of work on you. Now, why were they there? Well, they were there because Jesus had kind of invited them to be there. You may recall from... The passage we looked at last week, after Jesus healed the leper in Mark 1, 43-44, this is what he said to the man. He said, he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So Jesus was kind of wanting the authorities to come and hear him, now, this man didn't do it. You may recall, he just went completely public with his healing, and was, it was like a jailbreak for him. But word got to them anyway. And so Luke tells us that this is who was in the room when he's explaining the story in Luke 5.17. He says, one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. And so in each of these places Jesus had gone after he left Capernaum, he had created such a stir that the religious police from those villages had sent people to follow him and to keep an eye on him. And so now he's back in Capernaum and they're here. So it's no surprise then that the room is packed to the gills and that people are even pressing in outside the door when suddenly there's a ruckus on the roof. Um, The roof of this house would have been flat, okay? So the way they made these homes was they made them in squares, and they had a flat roof, and uh, they'd put down beams, and then they would put, like, clay structures on those beams so that you could stand on that roof, and they would have a thatch type of roof over the top of that. And so a lot of people, because this was in the days before air conditioning in the Middle East, your house would be too hot. And so what you would do is you would go up on the roof, you'd have a set of stairs going up the side of your wall, and you would go hang out in kind of like a shaded area on your roof. So if you have like a, a deck with a, with a roof on it or a shaded area in your backyard, you know how refreshing that can be. And that's what, how they used these things. And so apparently what happened is these four guys heard Jesus was back in town. They're like, hey, we got to go get our friend, right? we got to go get, we don't know his name, Levi, Simon, whatever. And we've got get to get him to Jesus. And so they go and break into this guy's house, right? Pick him up, put him on a stretcher, take him to Jesus's place. But when they get there, it's too late. Place is full. They can't get in. There's no way they're going to get th- their friend to Jesus until this is all over because literally everybody would have to leave the house in order for them to get him to Jesus' feet. But they're not willing to wait, And so one of them says, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's go up to the roof. And they grab some tools, they head up to the roof, and they dig through someone's roof, either Jesus' roof or Peter's roof. Now, imagine how you would respond if you were in town and your house was full of people who had come to hear you teach the Bible to them when suddenly some people are... Axing their way through your roof and ceiling to get somebody at your feet. I would be incredulous, right? I would be angry. I'd be like, you can't wait? I mean, just wait outside. There's one door. Where am I going? I'm teaching. Where is the respect? Where's the reverence? What, what are you, Why do you feel the need to interrupt me when I'm doing something important? I'll heal you. I'll get around to it but not Jesus. Instead, Jesus is impressed. He's smiling. Verse 4, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying, seeing their faith. Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is delighted by this. He is impressed with their audacity. He is impressed with their trust in his heart. He is impressed with their faith in his power, and he is impressed with their love for their friend. He is captivated by this entire scene. Now, I believe that's one reason we got the lily grant, right? Jesus liked the audacity of the application. I think it made him smile that Holly and I would think, who knows, you know, maybe. Maybe it'll just be the most ridiculous Lily Grant in the history of Lily Grants. What we were asking for was so ridiculous that if we got it, we would know that he did it, right? We didn't deserve it. It was pure grace. It was sheer mercy that we got something that crazy. I think that's also why hope exists. When God called the 44 of us to start hope as Uptown's first daughter church, at one point, senior pastor Tom Hawks there sat me down and he said, hey, Mark, what is your exit strategy if this doesn't work out? And I was like, it's going it's to go great. There's, there's no need, no need for next strategy, right? This is going to be amazing. And he's like, no, 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 seriously, like, you're not coming back to Uptown. Like, we're not... We're not bringing you back. Like we, we were, we, You're happier elsewhere, right, was kind of the nature of this conversation. We, we were glad to have you, but it's good to see you go, son, right? <laughs> Be warm and well fed. No boomerang kids here at Uptown. Why don't you just move on down the road, right? And yet, I was like, I don't know, man. I just think God's in it. And he was. And I think maybe you've experienced the same thing. I mean, you have had the audacity to go forward with a church plant in the middle of COVID and to stick with it as your planting pastor's family has just been through the ringer. And you guys keep showing up. You've even grown as a church, which is kind of crazy. Like, COVID has, like, killed most churches, right? They just didn't make it. You guys are growing. We had had people come to membership in this church who became members online when we were broadcasting Gordon preaching from this place and there was no one here. That's a God thing, right? Only Jesus can do that. Maybe you're here not because of your audacious faith but because of somebody else's. Somebody's faith has dragged you here whether it's the persistence of a praying grandmother or the imprudence of a pushy friend or a sibling, uh, you know for a fact that you were running away from God as fast as you could, but their faith kept bringing your paralyzed soul back to Jesus' feet. That's what's happened to this man. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, not this man's faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. See, here's the tricky thing about forgiveness is it it comes by grace through faith, but the faith isn't always your own, right? Faith isn't a work. Faith isn't something that earns you Jesus' forgiveness. It's a gift. And so sometimes Jesus gives you faith because somebody you love depended on him to do it that Jesus said to them, you look at me, I'll look at them. And that's what's happening here. Jesus gave this man more than he would have dared to ask for. His friends had brought him hoping for temporary relief from paralysis, but what they discovered is that Jesus was offering him a free pass to eternal life in paradise. And yet, if you were his friend at this point you've drug him all the way there you've taken him up on the roof on a on a you know mat you've dug through the roof you've jerry rigged some kind of rope to lower him down at Jesus's feet and Jesus says friend your sins are forgiven what would you be thinking would you be like really i mean we didn't that's that's kind of a disappointment i mean we were We were hoping that you were going to heal this guy. We're here for a healing. See, all of us come to the Lord with certain presenting problems. Things that we want God to fix. Whether it's the physical problems of infertility or anxiety, or an autoimmune disorder, or it's relational problems like loneliness, or broken relationships, or a wayward child, or maybe they're vocational problems like the need of a job that provides real meaning and purpose and the kind of financial security that you've always longed for. But a real relationship with the living God begins when we allow Him to look below our presenting problem to address our real problems. And what are our real problems? Well, this passage reveals that the primary problem that all of us have are the questions about God that we carry around in our hearts. Look at verse 8. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking. That they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? What are the questions about God that you are carrying around in your heart? I'm carrying around this question. Can I trust you? Can I trust your heart, particularly when I can't see your hand? You seem to be letting things kind of go crazy down here. Can I trust your heart when I can't see your hand? Can I trust you when I find myself in the dark? Can I depend on you to comfort me, to strengthen me, to give me a hope that will endure the ability to carry on when life gets too hard? Or too long. There's an old Dixie Chick song where they used to sing, I wish life were easier instead of any longer. There are times when that resonates with me. What's the question you're asking? Particularly when the circumstances of your life aren't turning out as you'd hoped. When you feel paralyzed by fear or addiction or people who are standing in your way. When you do all this work to ask Jesus to heal someone that you love, but he seems willing to let them stay paralyzed while he works on their sins instead. When he reveals some things that you've been taught about God simply aren't true, that you sincerely believed it, but you were wrong. That's not the way life works. That's not the way he works. Their questions are Two, why and who? Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now those are good questions. Because as we saw in our call to worship today, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Psalm one thirty three and 4 say, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. See, they want to know why Jesus is forgiving sin instead of merely healing people. Who does Jesus think that he is? And so Jesus answers this question. Verse 8, Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home so who does jesus think he was well this is his first time of introducing himself to hebrew theologians and he uses a technical term as he introduces himself and it's really important for us to understand who jesus thought he was he says that he is the son of man which is a very strange title to take on for yourself Unless you're familiar with the book of Daniel. Daniel, 500 years before Jesus was born, was captive in Babylon. And he was praying that God would restore Israel from captivity in Babylon. And he would reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth. And he was given a vision. A vision that he he recorded for us in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And this is what he said. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language, should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. See, what Jesus is saying to guys who would know what he's saying is, the king is here. The king has come. And so that you'll know that the king has authority to forgive sins, I'm going to do what Isaiah told you the Messiah would do, and that is I'm going to heal this guy. In doing so, he answers both questions. Look again, beginning in verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking that they were thinking this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were astounded and gave glory to God, saying... We have never seen anything like this. Now, to understand this scene, remember where we are. We're in a house that is so packed with people that these guys couldn't get in. The moment Jesus heals this guy, it's like the parting of the Red Sea. This guy is able to get up, take up his mat, and walk straight out the front door. Why? Because everybody in there is like, oh my gosh, like they are backing up, going, what has happened? And they are freaking out. They are like, I cannot believe that this just took place. And that guy just walks right out of that house with the mat under his arm and rejoicing and going home. And the, the, a party breaks out on the roof. So, who is this Jesus? Well, he's who Hebrews 1, 3 tells us he is. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus' power to speak and to act for God came from the fact that he actually was God. God the Son, very God of very God, come to earth in human form. He is God with skin on The exact representation of God's nature. Which is why I put one of my favorite quotes on the front of your bulletin from Brennan Manning. He says, We cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. This implies that all of our prevailing images and understandings of God must crumble in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. Trust means the willingness to let go of all terrifying and comforting images of God we have held so that the gift of God in Jesus Christ may come to us on God's terms. If you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus alone reveals God's exact nature. But this ability, this ability to forgive and this ability to heal comes at an enormous cost. The author of Hebrews explained the cost this way. He said, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus had something to do in order to acquire this power. He had to come and make purifications for sins. You may be in kind of an American notion, a mistaken notion, that it's easy for God to forgive sins. I mean, after all, He's God. All He has to say is, I forgive you, and things are done. But that kind of forgiveness is based on two false notions about forgiveness. First, it underestimates the price of our sin, and second, it underestimates the cost of forgiveness, First, it underestimates the price of our sin. You can think about this in your own life. When you're betrayed by someone, how easy is it for you to forgive that person? Well, it depends on how much you loved them before they betrayed you. The more you loved them, the bigger the betrayal is. If you say, let's say after this service, you come and you're on your way out and you, you feel the need to tell me, hey, listen, man, I hated that sermon. I'm never coming back, right? That happens occasionally, right? Not often, but every now and then. Um, I probably would be disappointed. I'd be hurt. I'd be concerned. But it would be really different than if Holly said that. If Holly said to me after this, that was so embarrassing, that was humiliating, I am never coming to hope with you again, all right? I would be in a world of hurt at that moment. Why? Because I love Holly more than I love you. I'd miss you, right? But this would be fatal, right? This would be like game over for me. Well, how much do you think our betrayals affect God? He loves us more than we could imagine, more than anybody we love. As much as I love Holly, as much as I love my kids, God loves you more than that. After all, he knit you together inside your mother's womb, and he placed you at this moment in time in the hopes that you would seek him and find him if you sought him with all your heart. And yet, what do we do? Instead, we ignore him. Or worse still, treat him like he should be our servant that he should just get busy helping us accomplish the American dream. Which means most of us have underestimated how much it costs him to forgive us because we've diminished the price of our redemption. Whenever a debt is incurred, somebody has to pay it, right? Either the person who took the money or the person who gave the money. Several years ago, I had a friend... He had four kids. He was a teacher. And I can't remember if he was buying a house or refinancing a house, but he went to the bank to get a loan. It was a pretty big loan for him. And when he got there, he discovered that his mother had opened a credit card in his name and had run up $10,000 in debt, which threw a real wrench into his plans, not only for that house, but just their whole finance and, and their relationship. Now, at that point, he had a decision to make. Either he could make his mom pay him back legally, personally, somehow. She's going to have to pay off the $10,000, and she didn't have it. Or he could forgive her. But then who's got to pay the credit card company? He does, right? Debts must be repaid. When they are incurred, someone is going to pay the debt. It's either the debtor or the lender. The same is true in our relationship with God. When we incur God's wrath by provoking His justice, by rebelling against His reign in our life, the wages of that decision, Romans 6, twenty-three tells us what they are. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how can Jesus give us the gift of eternal life? The answer is, he has to pay the debt of our death. That's why he can say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, because he knew he was going to die for him. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin... To be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus can say to the man, your sins are forgiven, because of who he is. He came to pay God what you owe him and could never repay. He came to live the perfect life you could never live, to die the death, do your sins that you couldn't escape, so that He can call you forth from the grave and free you from the things that have got you paralyzed. What is the appropriate response to that? What these people did. Verse 8 Right away, Jesus perceived in His spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. And as a result, they were all astounded And they gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The only appropriate response to the sinless Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you is worship. It's to see what he is worth and to give him what he's worth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us and that you came to save us not only from the physical things and the material things and the relational things that we suffer, but more importantly from our sin and from ourself. So that like this man, we can go forth glorifying you. We pray now, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might see what you're worth and give you what you're worth in worship here today. Amen.